Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Dental Boardroom Podcast. My name is Drew Phillips, and I'll be the host of today's episode. I'm so excited to introduce our guest today, Miss Cecilia Chin. She's a veteran in the dental space, has been a an attorney and an ally for many clinicians during their transition period, whether it's into private practice or into retirement. She's been a viable resource for them. And I'm excited to have her on the show today to share her stories and and get to know her just a little bit more. So welcome, Cecilia. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So let's get started with a brief background on, on just who you are and how you found yourself into the dental space so we can get we all have a little bit better understanding of of how you, how you arrived here. Sure, sure. So again, my name is Cecilia Chen. I am an attorney. I specialize in representing dentists in transition transactions when a dentist is looking to purchase or sell their dental practice. I review leases, set up partnerships, especially for for startups, associate contracts, as well as setting up you know dental service organizations, DSOs. I have been practicing since 2004. My background is in merger and acquisitions, and I worked for a large firm and doing kind of a lot of those large transactions. I started my own firm in 2009, and I have been focusing in the healthcare dental niche since 2011. So for the past 12 years, I guess, if I'm doing the the math correctly, (laughs) you know, I have been focusing and and a lot, you know, transition transactions, about 90% of my clients are dentists. The other 10% are veterinarians and optometrists. So I also help those professionals when they're looking to transition or purchase a practice. And they're, you know, majority of those transactions are are selling to, to corporate and also, you know, startups as well. So that's kind of a brief background about who I am. And I'm located here in San Diego, but I work with clients all over over the state and many out of the state as well. Thanks for sharing that, that background. And, you know, Cecilia and I have had the pleasure of working together on numerous transactions during our shared yeah. experiences in the dental space. And something that's emerged, not necessarily as a novel new topic, but something that recently has occurred and I thought would be a great topic to kind of share just in case someone else goes through a similar experience during their time. And that's when an unfortunate passing of, of a doctor happens before they exit their their practice. And so they are leaving mm-hmm. their loved ones with the responsibility of, of figuring out how to mitigate that piece of the process. So Cecilia, why don't you just kind of walk through this particular case study and give us your, your experiences and, and things that people should be looking out for and, and how families can prepare for for I- any situation. And, you know, obviously yeah, this one as well. Yeah, definitely. You know, when when somebody owns their own practice or, you know, owns their own business, it really is important to have a plan in place on how to transition that business, that practice to protect its value and protect the family that they're leaving behind. Now, none of us really ever think at at almost any age really think that, oh, you know, there, there might not be a tomorrow, right? Especially those who are younger, but anything can happen. You you can go into a, a routine surgery and not come back out. You can go on, on vacation and, and something happens. And, and I'm not trying to be morbid, but it's it really is a topic that's not just for older dentists to think about and prepare. It really should be for, for, for all of us. Um, I mean, if we're watching the news, right? Of, Bronnie James and, just recently had a cardiac arrest at 18 years old in a basketball practice. So yeah. it can happen, right? It can happen to anybody. The, you know, the, the clients that I have worked with who pass unexpectedly, many of them are in their 30s, 40s. You know, accidents happen and, you know, and then you go into a routine surgery that you think nothing's going to go wrong and something goes wrong, you know. And so the important part is that, okay, 
what what does that involve? What steps do I need to take? So a lot of people are like, okay, well, I will have a trust set up. That that's a great important step. Have a trust set up so that your business, your practice doesn't have to go through the incredibly expensive and time-consuming process of probing. You know, when when you go through the probing process. It can take six months, twelve months, or even even longer than that because of COVID, and and by that time there is not going to be much value left, right? There's not going to be much patience left for the practice to have any value to sell. Cecilio, I want to I want to just expand upon that part really quick. So if there is no trust set up and the practice does need to go through the probate process, what? actions can the family take to potentially mitigate practice revenue declines during that interim period while they're waiting for the probate process to be finished and then be able to actually sell? It's going to be a long, long process. I mean, that's a process that everybody should do everything they can to avoid. And if it can't be avoided, you know, see if there is an associate they can hire, but in the interim period, but know that Non-dentists cannot continue to own a dental practice in California without the owner being a dentist. So there is a very finite, limited period where you can keep the practice going with an associate. And typically, usually, even the, the associate is not going to be working, be able to work full time. And if they are working full time, then they're they're going to start questioning. You know, well. If I'm doing all this, why am I just an associate? Why am I not buying the practice? You know, so the dental practice is not like any other practice where where somebody can can potentially continue to own and receive passive income on. It has to be owned by a licensed dentist. Do you know how long that finite period is for them to offload that practice? Uh, I believe I would need to double check. I believe it's twelve months. Gotcha, gotcha. So and that's really running some some tight windows there with probate potentially correct. lasting twelve months or, or maybe even right. a little longer. Right, exactly, exactly. So you know the family cannot. You know a lot of people are like, well, I have I have my spouse. So if I pass away, of course my my spouse can take over. Not necessarily because the court has to appoint and give your spouse legal authority. To sign documents, to hire a broker, to to have the authority to sell the practice. So it's not as simple as oh, I have I have a spouse that can just step in. So are there ever situations where the court potentially wouldn't appoint the spouse in these situations? There could be situations where the the couple is going through a separation or divorce, or if the spouse is. You know, not has has health issues or or in a in a not competent state because the spouse has Alzheimer or dementia, whatever that uh, the case might be. That makes sense. So you know, setting up a trust is an important first step, and, and, and that really should. I mean, I can't I can't stress that enough about how important it is to set up a trust to not just protect. The practice, but also to protect the family and and kids involved. But beyond that, there is an additional important step to take, which is, you know, not every spouse is capable of stepping into the role of taking care of the business matters, right? Because they're going to be going through the grieving process. They're going to be going through the shock, and they might not have ever had any experience in involved in like selling a business or running a business. So that person might not be the right person to to step in the role of you know selling and managing the practice right after your passing. So who should be that person? Well. Who in your life do you believe is the right person to step into that role while your immediate family is, you know, going through the grieving process? 
And that's going to be different for, for everybody. You know, so some people are like, well, my brother is going to be the best person. My sister might be the best person, my best friend and my college buddy, you know, whoever that might be, or my, or, or, or the person that I went to dental school with, whoever that person is, you need to have a conversation with that person and have legal documents drawn up. And, 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 and in, in some cases, it could very well be the spouse. I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, to discount the spouse. I'm just saying that the spouse might not be the default, the right person for everyone. And whoever that person is, you know, there should be legal documents drawn up saying, okay, I have a trust. And then in that trust, this is the person I'm going to appoint to take care of managing and, you know, and selling my practice. So it sounds to me like based on that, you would almost recommend that as part of your post-close process to get a trust in place really early on. Is that fair? Definitely. Absolutely. Is there Absolutely. is there a specific kind of trust that you would recommend over others? Not at all. I mean, everybody will benefit having having a trust. Even single persons, they can they can have a simple trust set up to protect their assets, to protect you know, their their family members, right? But especially those that are married, that have kids, and whether young kids, adult kids, regardless, you know, having a trust is really important. But beyond having a trust, you know, that's something that most people don't think about. And even a non-dental trust attorney wouldn't think about is to make sure that it's addressed in your trust who you are going to appoint to have as the person to manage and take care of your take care of your practice, the selling of your practice. Are creating trust a part of services that, that you provide to, to doctors? Yeah, definitely. But it's not it's 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 not it's not a main you know it's it's not a main area of service that that I do. It's it's not what I do day in and day out, but it's definitely something I can do. And and my associate I have an associate in my office that also you know takes care of that for my clients. Wonderful. When you're in a transaction, whether or not you're on the other side or, or representing the party that has a deceased doctor, what are some challenges when you're actually at a probate, you're actually in the deal process that, that you run across? You know, Some of it, I'm, I'm assuming, is probably due to lack of, of experience and, and know-how, but just kind of curious, what, what other sort of pitfalls do you see in, the, in those transactions when we're in this type of scenario? Well, for one, I can't stress enough that the person who is, you know, appointed to manage and sell their practice has the emotional ability and the business ability to to do that, you know, to make decisions, to hire the right broker and then not not be overwhelmed with every single, you know, decision. And, and also be able to make a very quick decision regarding what is the most important thing to preserve, right? If you also own the real estate, what can you do to, you know, what, what should be expected? Because if you own, if you also own the real estate, besides just the practice, you have to expect that whoever is buying the practice is going to want to own that real estate at some point. So the idea of, no, I never, ever want to sell the real estate or, you know, I don't, I don't want to provide even a right of first refusal or an option to purchase at a later time because it might potentially, you know, impact the attractiveness of this property you know, those are things that, you know, should be considered, then how are you going to preserve? I just think it's, it's, it's important to know, you know, which is more, which is more important, you know, preserve the value for the real estate or preserve the value for the practice. That's but I, but I truly think, I truly believe there is a way to do both by being open-minded, by being in an emotional state, not just emotional, but but also have the business knowledge to understand how a transaction is negotiated 
that it's a give and give and take process that you're going to give a, give a little and the other party is going to give a little and make compromises and that's how a deal can come together in a way that the person will be able to purchase the practice and then hopefully you know the real estate at you know at, at a later time and that will be a win-win situation for everybody involved but instead you know, if, if a person is absolutely not in a mental state to make decisions and constantly going back and forth and and not have the knowledge or business knowledge, then it becomes very difficult. And all of a sudden, everything is going to fall apart very, very quickly. All of a sudden, you know, there's no one working at, in the practice. The value is declining every single day. Right. Patients are leaving. And so, okay, well, we don't care about selling the practice anymore. We're going to focus on the real estate. Okay, well, real estate with a practice, in theory, should be easier to sell. But that's necessarily isn't true either. A lot of people, you know, if, if the family is in disagreement about when to sell and who wants to, you know, some Somebody might want to keep the real estate for a long time for investment purposes. And the other person say, well, I think this is the right time to sell. You know, especially, you know, when there are a lot, number of adult kids involved, everybody is going to, and, and, and spouses. So adult kids and their spouses, all of a sudden there are six, eight, ten people involved that have different opinions. And things can fall apart very, very, very quickly. I couldn't couldn't agree more. And, you know, we've kind of, our industry is conditioned to expect that when the current practice owner is the also the real estate holder, that that is going to be a part of that transaction, whether or not it's, you know, formally sold to them at the time of, of selling the practice or at some later date, as you mentioned, through the use of a first right of refusal. We just, this industry just kind of expects that to be a part of it. And if you're coming in from the outside and, maybe you have real estate background or or whatever and real estate's part of your portfolio holdings you kind of expected that asset to potentially be available for continued growth and cash flow value and right. then they come in the transaction and get to meet real dental professionals and realize that that may not be always possible it's also i think a, you know something that other practice owners should think about when they consider the real estate holdings as this long-term investment asset while it is a you know typically a good option for increasing their path towards financial independence they have to keep in mind what this industry kind of expects during that deal process you know totally so when we think about the building and the practice and the cash flows of that practice and knowing that the you know ultimately if we're going to get if the buyer's going to get financing for that building at the time of sale there's, there's got to be a certain level of, of cash flows available from the practice operations to support the financing of that building. And, you know, I would say, especially in markets like California and New York, and, and you know, you, you really run into situations quite frequently where even in, in decently run and, and operated practices, the cash flows are just not enough to support such high purchase prices on these real estate assets that have accumulated over you know the past you know decade or, or more so also another thing to to consider but so if when we think about you know the emergence of DSOs right kind of switching gears here just a little bit Cecilia you know I, I know that you know with the emergence and the consolidation you're been taking a pretty big role in helping not only buyers but you know probably more often sellers enter these transactions with these larger DSOs or even middle market DSOs for that matter mm-hmm. and just maybe give us a little bit of background on your experience there so far and what what you're seeing in that space yeah so typically a DSO is going to offer you know a much higher price than a private private buyer by than a private doctor buyer so that is very attractive to a lot of people until you realize what that much higher price is based on. You know, I think that for somebody who is interested in going that route and to potentially, you know, sell to a DSO, they kind of do need to expect to work back for a period of time. For somebody who is looking to get out and not work at all for, you know, after the sale is complete, 
the DSO is not is not the right buyer for you. The DSO model, their their profitability, their their model for buying practices and the value and a, a profitability that's built in on offering those much higher price is largely dependent upon the selling doctor being able to work back at the practice for for about three to five years. It's a really good point so, that you just made, Cecilia. And I was just at a large DSO conference last week in Denver. And you know, there's two private equity models in the DSO space that have been predominant up until this point. And one is the sort of the asset accumulation model. And the second is what colloquially they call the evergreen model. And the asset model is really a dying model. And and, and that model was accumulate as many practices as possible, regardless of you know the, the legacy doctor continuing in the practice or not, and then try to package that up and sell it as quickly as possible to the next larger buyer. But what they are focusing on more, you know, at least based on my experience in that conference and, and, and directly, is that they really want longer term partners and the three to five year workback periods. While they set those minimums, and you're, I want this is kind of opening you up, Cecilia, to this next point, is that they set these provisions in place on how you can exit your retained equity in that transaction and based on if you're still working or if you're not working. And and they do that, right, to sort of incentivize you to continue being a longer-term partner past that sort of required three- to five-year work-back period. So what type of terms do you see that impact that future value for that doctor that, that really does need to be considered on the front end? Well, usually there are two different portions of the purchase price. One is what you're going to receive immediately at closing. That's the cash portion. And then the other portion of the the purchase price is typically a deferred deferred amount, meaning that it's going to be contingent upon you still working at the practice and it's going to be contingent upon certain revenue goals that the DSO is going to set out that should be met, that they expect those revenue goals to be met in order to pay those deferred compensation, you know, the deferred purchase price. I will argue that in a lot of cases, it's not as simple as people might think. People might think, oh, it's it's not a big deal. I'm I'm fine working there, and I'm fine, and and I don't see any problem meeting those revenue goals because that's that's the historical amount of what's being generated. And my practice, I mean, you know, my practice has been generating that amount for the past 10, 20 years. I have I see no issues, and I I'm not concerned. And the the, the problem with that that is a very simple simple way of you know viewing things because it's going to be very very different for how you're going to manage and produce that revenue when you no longer own the practice when you are no longer the owner and that the DSO is the one that has the final decision making power on all the major decisions of the practice, staff, insurance, operating hours, what type of insurance to take, how your schedule, so many different things that is going to be no longer within the control of the, you know, of the owner doctor. Now, I don't mean that all these things means that DSO is bad and, and they, you know, you should run as, you know, as soon as you get an offer from from DSO. No, not at all. I mean, so, some when when done correctly, it can it can be very mutually beneficial for both parties. But it you do need to understand, you know, what they're offering and have the a realistic expectation, and also make sure that you are properly protected in a way that you do have a say on certain decisions related to the practice because it's going to impact your ability to stay employed working there at the practice and it's going to impact the ability of the practice meeting meeting the revenue goals all great points and you know there's so many different dso 
philosophies and operational structures. And, and depending on what their inclination is, they, they may take a more hands-on approach and try to come in and, and really replicate their operating model within your practice. And some take a more of a hands-off approach and, hey, if you continue to maintain the revenue and EBITDA that we purchased you, then we're going to let you continue to be your own sort of sort of boss and, and we'll have some shared services. But And there's, and there's obviously a, a middle ground in there as well. It's a spectrum. Just on the legal side specifically, what are some maybe some case studies of, of some really important deal points that impacted your clients and, and and what those what those outcomes ended up being as a result? Well, I think the most important part that most people are concerned about is how much of the purchase price is going to be received at closing, right? Because that that's the only for sure thing that that can really be counted on, and and then then. It can it it'll it'll be a matter of negotiation to make sure that it is you can continue to stay employed and make and, and have a say in certain decisions that impact the, the revenue goals, impact your happiness to continue to operate. And specifically, you know, related to staff, you don't want the DSO to have the ability to take your very experienced staff and to put them in another office, right? Because that's going to really create a hardship for your office. And, and with the role that the selling doctor is expected to take on after the closing. And a lot of times, a, a lot of the transactions, what I have seen is that a certain portion of the purchase price is, is investment in return to, for, for equity interest in the DSO. So that model allows, you know, ensures that both parties are are going to benefit mutually benefit from the upside, the practice, right? Doing for the practice doing well. But then you need to understand: does the legal documents actually reflect what you know people are telling you over fancy dinners and over the phone about? You know, this is going to be mutually beneficial and how you are going to, if our, you know, if we sell in the future to a bigger, you know, private equity group at like 10 times, even a imagine the amount of, you know, money you, you're going to receive for that 20% equity in our DSO company, right? But then there is the flip side, how, you know, how well funded is your company to begin with? You need to understand their finance. You need to understand their, their, you know, future objective and how are their existing practices run and what is the future plan once, you know, your time in working there is, is over, you know, with, with the three to five years when you're no longer working there, who, who's going to be there working and what is their, you know, long-term outlook for the practice. So, and the legal documents have to match what people are telling you over, you know, excited phone calls, ex- excited dinners and drinks. That's and, yeah. That's those are such good points. I, you know, I think that in these particular transactions, right, it's almost like you've got this dual-sided investigation process going on. As, as whereas in private market transactions, it's really just, you know, buyer interviewing seller. But really in these transactions, both parties need to do their own due diligence on each other because they're formulating, you know, business marriage, so to speak. I think that you would agree with this, Cecilia. You know, we always recommend to people, the earlier that you can get in contact with your future transaction advisors, whether it's your financial due diligence, your your legal with Cecilia, the earlier we can start before the transaction process to help coach and guide you to set up that transaction to be successful as possible is a good thing. But what I've realized and and what I want you to speak to a little bit here is that the preliminary stages that go into formulating a letter of intent, there's tends to be a lot more groundwork in being more methodical in, in how you're crafting that letter of intent in these DSO transactions compared to a private practice sale where Honestly, you probably would agree to some extent that the LOI in a private practice sale is more or less just like, hey, let's let's just let's try to get to know each other a little bit better, but we're not necessarily sold a hundred percent on on the deal. So just maybe a little bit of like the differences in that pre-LOI stage and between private and DSO transactions and, and what your experience is there. Yeah. So in a in a private transaction, 
you know, I would argue the LOI is still important. Agreed, agreed, agreed. Uh, you know, and, and I really think even in that stage, it should be reviewed by an attorney because there, there have been many transactions where things have not been addressed and, and it should have been addressed in the LOI or it was addressed and the person who's reviewing it didn't really understand the impact of, of what they're assigning and agreeing to. And people hear all the time, oh, you know, especially from, from brokers, they hear all the time, oh, it's, it's non-binding. It's not a big deal. Just, just, just sign here so, so we can proceed with the transaction. Non-binding doesn't mean this document is meaningless because if it's completely meaningless, then, then why even bother signing it, right? So the document, the only, the, I think people don't really understand what non-binding means. What non-binding means is that just because you sign an offer to purchase a practice doesn't mean you are bound to still purchase the practice because there are contingencies involved in in that letter of intent, such as getting a loan, such as getting an acceptable lease, such as completing due diligence. So if those contingencies are not met and they're not satisfied, then you're not bound to purchase the practice and you can walk away, get your deposit back, et cetera, et cetera. But if you are going to proceed with the transaction, the things that have been agreed to, the terms that have been agreed to in the LOI, they do, they do make a difference. They expect, you know, the parties do expect those terms to be honored as you proceed with the transaction. And that's when a lot of times people are like, oh, crap, you know, I didn't realize this, it means this. Oh, I didn't realize if yeah, I told the seller I want to buy the real estate, I didn't realize that needed to be included in, in, the, in the LOI. And now a week away from closing, turns out I'm now finding out the seller doesn't want to sell the real estate to me ever in the future. So, you know, a lot of things that really should be addressed in the LOI sometimes, you know, are not. And sometimes they are addressed, but the person reviewing it don't, don't really necessarily understand the impact of what it means to be agreeing to those certain terms. And, and what the impact is going to be when you, pre, when you actually proceed with the transaction. But I do recognize probably, I would say, 50, 60% of the transaction, even if the, even if the LOI is not reviewed by an attorney, they still go through just fine at the end. But it's the other you know, 40, 40 to 50% of the transaction that don't go smoothly because the LOI wasn't reviewed you're just not going to know which camp you're going to fall in, right? And to me, I think it's important to take the time, invest a little bit of time and effort to really know what is important for this transaction. Why are you buying this practice? And what should be addressed in the LOI? And even if people are telling you it's non-binding, do you, do you really even understand what non-binding means? But more importantly, if you are selling to a DSO, the, those LOIs are extremely, extremely complicated. And, and I would say, if you don't have an attorney to review the LOI from a DSO buying your practice, you are already making a huge mistake Couldn't from, agree more. From, from that very, very initial step. Because there are so many things buried. I mean, usually those LOI from, from a DSO are like, six to 10 pages long, right? They, you know, and they are throwing in a, a lot of things in there that you don't, you might not necessarily understand, or you might think, oh yeah, th this sounds okay. They want me to work for three years. I'm okay with that. They, they want me to agree to a non-compete. I'm okay with that. But there are so many other things that go into it, what it means to, you know, meet the deferred revenue goal, what, are the conditions that have to be satisfied to get the deferred, you know, purchase price and the terms of the employment, so many things. And especially if you also own the real estate, that's another level of complexity. I can't say enough that like I would say if you are selling to a DSO and you're not having that letter of intent carefully reviewed by a dental attorney that has the experience of 
you know, representing clients, selling to DSO, selling to corporate, you're already, you know, starting off on the transaction on, on the wrong footing and, and against your own interest. Couldn't agree more. And the LOI, generally speaking, it's supposed to guide the, the entire transaction, right? It's supposed to be that, that blueprint. And, I th- sure. and, you know, and I just think that when on the DSO side, that blueprint going into it, they, they spend so much time making sure that each fine detail is formalized on the front end. So before we go into that more expensive transaction and due diligence process, which is a lot more expensive and a lot more involved than it is on, a, on the private market side, and so before you ever even get into that financial commitment and that and, and it's a lot of, it's a lot of work right they they re- they request probably three times as much information they review it a lot more thoroughly and so it's it, it can it can be a lengthy process that if you don't get the right deal terms up front you're kind of spinning your wheels there and you know on the LOI, LOI side on the private market side I, you know it's probably 50/50 for me where I've got a client or a prospect that comes in and they have already submitted the LOI, right? Without anybody reviewing, right. as you mentioned. Right. And if it's a good practice, as you mentioned, which is maybe 50 to 60% of the time, no no issue. But it's right. when then when they bring in the advisors on the back end, like they open their eyes to all these things that they should have been aware of on the front end. And then it's like, oh, wow, I really got myself into something that I wasn't fully understanding. And that's when friction starts to starts to present itself. Well, before Completely. before we switch topics, is there anything else on the transaction space as it relates to DSOs that you want our listeners to be aware of? You know, just just kind of have a better idea. Just know that what is presented and during conversations over dinner and over, you know, phone calls might not necessarily match the legal documents that are presented. And it's your job to make sure that, you know, everything matches, right? And so I just think that that's an important step that a lot of people are not aware of. When you're looking at it, now we're kind of moving into the actual transaction itself. So we're past the LOI stage in this next next piece of our conversation. When we look at like, patient credits or and you know prepaid work and treatment plans that had already been committed to these items that you know quite frankly are often overlooked and I know working with you directly those are things that you certainly don't overlook right exactly and so maybe just give a little bit of background on what these items are and 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 educate our listeners a bit on, on those pieces sure so so patient credits are overpayments from either third parties or patients on treatments that have already been been rendered. So a lot of times those credits should be refunded to patients or those third parties. And but if they are still on the on the record at the time of the sale of your practice, you should either at that time make the effort to refund them directly or be or expect to transfer them to the buyer but do nothing or or in some cases i have had you know sellers feel that they're entitled to keep those credits as an asset is just mind-boggling because it's not an asset it's an it's a liability it's credits that are owed to the patients it they are not earned they are not earned revenue by the seller so to have the mentality of, you know, I'm not going to do anything. My, my expectation is to keep those credits after the sale. It's just simply not a reasonable one because it's going to, A, it's, it's, not, it's not legally compliant. You know, they have to be returned to the patients or the third party, whoever that made, made, the, made the overpayments. And if you don't want to be bothered with that, then they need to be transferred to, to the buyer. And, and from a buyer's perspective, you know, if a buyer, you know, they might think that, oh, it might not be a big deal. I don't, it's fine. I'm not, you know, I can just tell the patients that, you know, I'm the new owner of the practice and I don't, you know, I don't know anything about these credits. So, you know, not, not worry about it. And that is, all, you know, naive and overly simple way of looking at things because, when a patient comes into the office, everything's the same, right? 
if the name is the same and the, the staff is the same, the only thing that is different is the owner doctor. And they are aware there are credits on the book that they should, you know, that should be honored. And when the owner doctor tells them, oh, I'm the new owner, I don't know anything about these credits, you should talk to the selling, selling doctor, they are not going to be happy about here, you know, hearing about that. You know, that the result is from what I have seen in it, what I have, you know, seen in other cases where that hasn't been addressed is that, you know, they lose patients or worse, the patients post a very, very strong negative review about the practice, not honoring what they're entitled to. And so that that's really an issue that really should be addressed because, you know, preferably at the LOI stage, because it turns out, you know, sellers and buyers have very, very different ideas about how that should be handled. And even even among attorneys, there are very, you know, different school of thoughts on how that should be handled. So if it's already agreed to and addressed in the LOI stage, it'll help make the transaction a lot more smooth. On patient credit and specifically, Cecilia, really quick, probably what, maybe you could probably speak to this better than I could, but maybe 90 to 95% of private market transactions are done under an asset purchase agreement as opposed to a stock purchase agreement. And in an asset purchase agreement, they're purchasing that practice free and clear of contingencies, loans, and liabilities by its very nature. And so to clarify, when in the circumstance where the buyer has inherited seller credits, maybe unknowingly, are they truly liable for those credits or is it more out of patient retention that they should care? It depends on how it's addressed in the purchase agreement. What about if it's not addressed in the purchase agreement at all? Then that's really terrible. Yeah. I mean, a a lot of times people, people think they, you know, people think that, oh, the purchase agreement is just a template. Everybody uses the same same document, or I can even download a template from from the internet, and we can just kind of write out our own ideas and sign it. It's a really bad idea. Even even if it's a, a document that was from your previous transaction, you were the buyer in the previous transaction. Now you're the seller, so your interest in the language in this new document is going to be very different. So, as far as the liability is concerned, yeah, from a legal standpoint most likely you can argue that the buyer is not responsible for for these credits. But from a practical patient retention standpoint, that's going to be a hard argument to make to a patient. Completely agree. And I'm I'm glad we we cleared that up. It's just good to know the the, the facts around the situation, regardless of whether or not, you know, it impacts what you decide to to do in those situations. But I I, I agree. Patient retention is incredibly important, especially for a a new practice owner. Right. And the last thing you want is to have, you know, lots of irate and angry patients writing negative reviews on this new practice that you just purchased. There are legit, in my experience, there are legitimate reasons when there are patient credits listed on the practice management books that aren't actually real, and and it usually comes down and to then, then the seller needs to needs to address that prior to the closing. Why is it not real? So if because the patient has passed away, then zero it out and write an explanation. Or well, even when the patient passes away, I mean, every, this is a state law. I mean, this is state by state, right. right? But like in California, I don't know exactly what the rules are, but there's a time limit. It, if someone passed state. away, they have to return that money to the state as unclaimed property, Correct. right? So Correct. even in those situations, it's you can't just write the balance off. But right. but in more legitimate reasons, when you enter a new patient into your practice management software, and that patient comes with their family. And then you create a family ID within that practice management software. And one family member may have a credit, but because you expensed it under the the leading family member's ledger, that is a real reason why it's an artificially created credit. But in so and I just was in a transaction where the patient credit balance, the real patient credit balance, was in over a hundred thousand dollars. Right, mm-hmm. very material yeah. stuff, and it's practice by practice, right? It just kind of depends on what that practice's legacy doctor's process was around credits and how quickly they mm-hmm. returned them. But yeah, I mean, some of these credits were, you know, five years old, right? So a lot mm-hmm. of cleanup work that that had to go into to, into that deal. What about other some of these other pieces too? Patients will prepay 
in a lot, especially in a lot of fee-for-service offices, right? You'll prepay for treatment. Yeah. Treatment still needs yeah. to be completed. How, how do you handle right. those and how do you identify those? So, so that should absolutely be transferred to, to the buyer. That shouldn't be even an issue. But it can become an issue when sometimes, you know, the seller feels that they should be entitled to the prepayment because they sold the case. They sold a large case. They spent the money on marketing. But at the same time, this is what the buyer is paying for, right? So again, I just think that in, 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 in the default to me for prepayments really should absolutely be transferred to the buyer at the time of the closing. And instead of, and, and they shouldn't be returned to the patients because to, to preserve the goodwill, to, to, to take advantage of the cases and treatment that are already on the books, you know, for the buyer that have, you know, paid a significant amount of purchase price for, they should be able to benefit from those cases, being able to render their treatment and get the, get the prepayments. But in, in rare cases, I mean, I, I, so I don't want to say, you know, every, everything is just, should be the same, how address, in every transaction. So in some specific cases, there might be legitimate reasons that this particular case, you know, should continue to, you know, stay with the seller and the seller should, should finish the, the treatment, even though it hasn't even been started before, you know, before the closing for, for a variety of reasons, because the seller's specific te- technique or the relationship with that patient or whatever the case might be, that is something that is a perfect example of something that really should be addressed in the letter of intent so that it doesn't become a problem at the 11th hour in the transaction. If, if both people, both parties are on the same page about certain things and the whole ideally is for the letter of intent to kind of minimize potential disputes that can come up during the transaction to make the transaction as smooth as possible. So if there is anything, you know, and, and, and how, how would somebody know, like how, how far from a dentist standpoint, like how would I know that this should be addressed in the LOI? Like how, how would I know that? And that's where working with an experienced, knowledgeable, you know, advisor and attorney becomes extremely valuable. Because I am speaking from experience. I have handled thousands of these transactions. I have seen all things that have gone wrong that, you know, cause a transaction to fall apart at the 11th hour. So I will know I have the experience and knowledge to know, oh, this is important to you. Let's let's get that address at the beginning instead of at the 11th hour. Of the closing. Absolutely. And it's, it's this is this, this particular topic around prepaids is especially important when the selling doctor isn't going to be participating active member in the practice post-close, whether they're right. working back to some right. degree. And it, and it becomes even a bigger issue in ortho practices. Right. Right. Because, you know, many of the treatments are, are paid ahead. Which in the ortho space, we call that sort of contracts receivable. Contract receivable. Right. 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 So, so there usually, you know, there usually should be a minimum amount established at the time of the letter of intent that the offer price is based on. Because most of the time that the offer price is based on the specific amount of contracts receivable that the, the buyer is expecting. So if the amount is very different at closing, that can be problematic. But if it's never addressed, of you know the base minimum amount at the letter of intent stage, then then it becomes really hard to kind of address, it's, and then it becomes he said she said issue. You know something that's I, I also find this rarely addressed at LOI is what the selling doctor's preferences are in being a continuing member in that practice, and that's I feel like you kind of discover that so so often like in the middle of due diligence, like, oh, I actually want to stale work here. 
like three days a week. And like, well, right. and then, so how do you navigate those? And what are some elements that when those conversations come up that you're looking for to see if there is room to make that happen or, or, or not? Well, yeah. First of all, I mean, then, you know, that's, that's a financial matter that I typically defer to, you know, the consultant to advise the buyer, is there enough cash flow to support two, two doctors working there? And in most cases, there isn't. But, you know, and, and in cases there are, then it, uh, that's great. We can, if we can make that happen, we can accommodate the seller. That's great. But, you know, again, and I, and I hate to keep repeating myself, but if this is an important issue for the seller, then that's something that should be addressed in the LOI. But on the other hand, you know, as we go through the transaction, there are ways that can still make it work, but to make, you know, but, but you got to make sure that the, the contract, the, the associate agreement, the work back associate agreement for the seller have language in it to protect the buyer, to allow the buyer to terminate that agreement. You know, if things change, if there isn't enough work to support both doctors. Yeah. So, so it's sort of like a unilateral ability to pull out of that working relationship. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. And a lot of times I think that especially in a transaction where the associate is buying the practice and then the roles switch, the associate becomes the owner. The older doctor is now the associate. And I find that relationship is still kind of hard to navigate. Because that older doctor still wants to be the one in charge and have a hard time being told what to do. That is a very interesting dynamic that poses plenty of room for friction in the future without Mm -hmm. a doubt. Well, as we come to a close here, Cecilia, just curious if there are any parting words that you would like to to share here with, with our listeners. Well, I mean, I think definitely I would say have a very optimistic view for, I don't want any of your listeners to think, oh my gosh, like this sounds like an impossible venture to buy a practice, to to sell to a DSO or, or whatever it might be. You know, things done correctly, when things done correctly, it can work out very, very well. And it can even work out better than you expected. So, you know, I would say approach every potential opportunity with autism, but at the same time to make sure you are doing the work to protect yourself and address issues that need to be addressed and make sure that, you know, what's being discussed aligns with what's reflected in the legal document. Very well said, and couldn't thank you enough for coming on the show and parting your wisdom for us today. Very, very helpful, and we would love to have you back on the show at some point in the future. There's plenty more topics for for us to discuss, as as we all know. But again, thank you so much, Cecilia, for joining us today. Of course. Thank you for having me. 